church. Thank you for the honor of being here today and for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to speak this morning from Luke chapter 10. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of my daughters asked me earlier this morning, hey dad, what are you preaching on this morning? And I said, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And she said, oh, how original. I said, thanks for the vote of confidence. She said, I've heard that already. And I said, well, I guess you can just sleep in. I mean, that illustrates, doesn't it, the danger of approaching a story you've heard many, many times? I've got that. And yet, I think today our challenge is going to be to ask this question, do we really get it? Do we really understand the message of this story, the radical call this story gives to us uh, to remind us that family matters and that our understanding of family may be broader than we think? So I'm going to begin reading in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, which says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hand of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. A little bit of context. In Luke chapter 10, where this story appears, it follows immediately on the heels of a story in which Jesus calls his followers together and he sends them out to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. He tells them they are to be messengers for his kingdom. And then in this passage, he tells us that we are to be neighbors, messengers and neighbors. We 
have to connect these two things that Luke connects. We're messengers and we're neighbors. If you are messengers without being a neighbor, your message falls on deaf ears. If you're a neighbor without being a messenger, to what end, right? And so Luke ties these two things together because Jesus tied these two things together for his followers. This is a parable. One of the most common teaching tools Jesus used. There are dozens scattered throughout the Gospels, concentrated in Luke's Gospel in particular, and a couple of characteristics about a parable that will come into play later. A parable is not an allegory in which each element of the story has some kind of hidden or symbolic meaning. No, a parable usually has one very direct message. And the most important stuff comes at the end of the parable. And so Jesus tells this parable that involves several characters, and we're going to look at each one, beginning with this expert in the law. Some translations actually call him a lawyer, which is, I don't think, a good translation because that brings to mind someone who practices law, someone who litigates, someone who prosecutes or defends, someone who tries cases. But that's not who this person was. This was a person who was an expert in the Jewish law. This was someone who probably knew the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, by heart, had studied it probably his whole life, was familiar with the oral traditions and commentaries surrounding the Jewish law. And he approaches Jesus with a test. We're told this is a test. What makes this a test? Well, he asks Jesus a question, and then depending on how Jesus answers it, Jesus was going to offend one significant group of people. And this is the way that people often presented tests to Jesus, get him to give an answer that alienates him from one group of people, and then they could oppose him because they were jealous and threatened by his growing popularity among the people. And so this expert in the law, if Jesus says, follow the Torah, aha, we've got him. Then those people who think we also ought to follow oral tradition, well, they're going to be angry. And if he says, follow the law and the oral tradition, then the Torah-only people are going to be upset with Jesus, but he doesn't take the bait. Instead, he turns the question back to the expert in the law and says, what's in the law? How do you read it? He does what good teachers always do. They answer a question with a question. And so this is the answer that the expert gives. He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, with your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This was a common summary of the law given by educated scholars, teachers, rabbis, because of the over 640 laws we have in the Old Testament. It's helpful if you can give a summary a succinct statement of all that those laws entail. And so this expert in the law does. Love the Lord your God. This handles the vertical relationship. Love your neighbor as yourself. This handles the horizontal relationship. All of the law is summed up in those statements. And so Jesus says, yes, he commends the expert. You've spoken rightly. Do this and you will live. But the expert in the law doesn't give up so quickly. He wants to We're told, justify himself. Why does he feel the need to justify himself here? Well, you see, it's relatively easy to love your neighbor as yourself if your neighbor is like you. If you have a narrow view of your neighbor, then that's not 
so difficult. If my neighbor is the guy next door who roots for the same football team that I do, who votes the way that I vote, who keeps his dog quiet at night, and who cuts his grass in a timely fashion, then that's a neighbor that I can love like I love myself. But if our view of neighbor is much broader, if our view of neighbor includes people not like us, people who don't vote like us, people with different education, with a different race or ethnicity, with a different socioeconomic status or a different sexual orientation, or if your neighbor is a refugee from a predominantly Muslim country, if your neighbor is someone that threatens you, that scares you, that's not like you, then suddenly loving your neighbor as yourself becomes a much more complex task, doesn't it? And so the expert in the law asks Jesus this question, and Jesus, again, doesn't answer the question in the most direct way. He responds with this story, which begins with a man robbed along a road, a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And people in Jesus' audience, people in um, this audience would have known about this road. Uh, they would have known that this was considered one of the most dangerous roads that you had in the ancient world because along this road, you can see the terrain. I actually took this picture from the window of a bus as we headed from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level, so approximately two and a half times the height of Red Mountain or Shades Mountain and then drops over a period of about 18 miles down to 850 feet below sea level through terrain that looks a lot like this. Rugged, dry, arid, desert-like terrain filled with hills and little ravines in which robbers could hide and jump out and attack. And this was a notorious road in Jesus' time, so notorious that its nickname, we know from historians, was called the Bloody Way. And so this man was traveling along the bloody road to Jericho. We don't know anything else about him. We don't know his ethnicity or his race because we don't know what language he spoke because he's not speaking. He's half dead. We don't know how, what his socioeconomic status was. We don't know what possessions that he had because he's been robbed. He's stripped of all his possessions. We don't know his physical stature, whether he was tall or short, whether he was attractive or unattractive because he's been beaten lying on the road. And in that sense, he is literally a nobody, which in a way makes him anybody, makes him everybody. Because in a spiritual sense, we are all like this man. We are all spiritually stripped of everything that we could bring to God. We are, without him, we have no worth, we have no value, we have no hope of being good enough, of being righteous enough, of being valuable enough to attain righteousness from God. But he gives it to us in Christ. He extends to us mercy. We are like the man along the road 
with nothing, in need of mercy. Every one of us, if we have anything, it has been given to us. If we have received mercy, it's because someone has been merciful to us. So the man robbed is us, in a way. Ah, but then along the road comes a priest, a priest, a professional minister. Part of my title is university minister, so I can relate to the priest. Someone you would expect would render aid when aid is needed. In fact, if you saw him, you might actually call someone. You know, in, uh, so if you run across someone who's down and out, you might say, well, I know a church where you can go and get some help. I mean, this was a respectable person who, by all accounts, should stop and help. Part of the priest's job, in fact, was to help administer worship in the temple. This is what he did, and yet, when he came to the man who'd been robbed, not only does he ignore him, he literally goes out of his way to pass by on the other side of the road. And then along comes a Levite. And we know a good bit about Levites, descended from the tribe of Levi. They did not inherit land as the other tribes did because God prescribed that the Levites would earn their livelihood by the tithes given from the other tribes. And so Levites quite literally earned their livelihood based on the mercy and compassion of other people. That's how they ate. This Levite is a person who every meal he'd had in all likelihood had been given to him by someone else. Every nickel he owned was a gift. He was the recipient of remarkable mercy as God had designed it. And so you think, oh, surely he's going to stop and help, right? If you're listening to this story for the first time, you think, oh, okay, well, the Levite is going to help. Because you see, part of what the Levite did is take care of the implements in the temple, help with worship in the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, some suggest that one of the jobs of a Levite was actually to distribute alms to the poor. So surely the Levite is the most likely person to help, right? And yet the Levite, the Levite does the same thing. He crosses to the other side of the road. The priest and the Levite, people who should help, don't help. Why? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why. He allows us, I think, in the creativity of the story to place ourselves in their, in their shoes and ask, would I stop? And what might be some of the reasons I wouldn't stop? Well, there's a couple of reasons we might uh, suggest. Uh, first is that, look, this man did a foolish thing. He traveled along a dangerous road by himself without a backup plan, without some means of help. Now he is stranded and he finds himself in the condition he's in because of his own choices. Uh, he is where he is because he has chosen it. We sometimes think this about the people around us, the people who are poor, it's because they've made bad choices. People who are addicted, they've made bad choices. People who are homeless, they've made bad choices. They're in this condition because of their own foolishness. Maybe the priest and the Levite thought this of the robber, and so they left him to suffer the consequences of his own actions. Number two, maybe, maybe they acted as they did out of a concern for their own safety. Maybe they were simply afraid. Because when you see a man lying on the side of the road who has obviously been robbed, what, what do you immediately think? Where are the robbers? 
Maybe they're still nearby. Maybe they're actually using this man to divert my attention so they can jump out and rob me next. The wisest thing to do in that moment would have been to scurry along as quickly as possible to get out of the area. In fact, this was the tactic that robbers used. Place a man who looks like he needs help. When people stop and help, you rob them too. And so in one respect, the priest and the Levite did something that you and I would consider prudent, right? Maybe even something that I would tell my own kids to do. Don't pick up a hitchhiker, right? Don't associate with people if you have a bad feeling and you're in a different part of town and, you know, those kinds of things. Be safe, right? Safety is the motivator. And yet this story in every way repudiates decisions made out of fear and calls us to a compassion that places mercy above safety. Maybe they didn't stop because they had religious duties to attend to. This is a common explanation given in all the commentaries, right? The priest and the Levite, if they come in contact with a dead body or with blood, this made them ceremonially unclean, unfit to perform their duties in the temple without going through the ritual purification that would have been required except there were actually provisions made in the law for those ministering in the temple to assist someone in need, even if it means they come in contact with things that make them unclean. There were provisions for this. And furthermore, we're told that the man robbed was heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Right? Even though Jericho is north, it's still down in terms of sea level. And so, we're also told that the priests and the Levite were heading down the same road. It means they were traveling away from Jerusalem, not toward Jerusalem. They had fulfilled their religious duties at the temple. Now they were headed somewhere else, headed home, headed on an errand. Who knows? But they were not headed to perform their religious duties in the temple. So that reason rings hollow. Yes, the man was foolish, perhaps. Yes, they were afraid, Maybe there's another reason why they did not stop and help. And maybe this reason applies to us and to our engagement with our family and with our family of faith and with our neighbors, both broadly and narrowly. Maybe this reason applies to us more than any. And this reason occurred to me when I read a, a book by Malcolm Gladwell entitled um, Tipping Point. And in that book, Tipping Point, Gladwell tells of a study conducted by a group of psychologists at Princeton Theological Seminary. They took a group of seminary students, and this experiment was inspired by this parable of the Good Samaritan. They took a group of students, and they gave them the task of walking across campus and giving a brief talk on a biblical theme. And they placed in the pathway between these two buildings a man who was in an alleyway, slumped over, with his eyes closed, moaning and coughing as though he were in some kind of physical distress. And they made it so that the students could only pass by that man to get to where they had been assigned to go and to give this talk. And they wanted to see which of the seminary students would stop and help this man. They set them up. They conducted a survey to find out some things about the students. Which of these students were in school because they wanted to help other people? Which of these students were in school because they thought that theological education would deepen their uh, understanding uh, and, and the meaning of life for them? Which of these students 
would stop because one of the topics they were given was the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not everyone of the students, but some of them were given this particular parable to talk about. Would those students stop and help the man in the alleyway? And then there was another group of students who were told, hey, look, you've got a lot of extra time, so why don't you go ahead and make your way over? You'll get there a little early. You can say hi to everybody, and you can relax a little bit, and we'll start the talk later. And to all the other students, they told them, look, you're late. You need to hurry. Go, go. They're waiting on you. And then they conducted the experiment. They sent the students out, and they wanted to see if they could predict which students would stop and help the man in the alley. Well, was it the students who were in seminary to help people? No. Was it the students who were in seminary because they were seeking a deeper meaning in life? No. Was it the students who had been given the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan? No. As a matter of fact, the researchers observed that in some instances, seminary students who had been given the parable of the Good Samaritan to speak on, literally walked through the alleyway and stepped over the man who was in the alley so they could show up on time to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a fourth group of students. But let me just say here, going over this in my mind this morning, I realized, here's what's going to happen on the way to church. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm, surely, I'm going to run into somebody who's, you know, broken down on the side of the road, and I'm going to face this choice. Am I going to show up late for Dawson, or am I going to help this person? And what if the person is actually a Dawson member, <laughs> and I don't stop, you know? So I left ridiculously early this morning, <laughs> and there was no one broken down because there was no one out on the roads. Uh, as sure as the world, this week, you're going to run into some situation where you're in a hurry, and you're going to face someone in need. Because here's what they dis discovered. Of the students who were told that they were late and needed to be there, only 10% stopped to help. But of the students who were told they had time to spare, 63% of the students stopped. Now, still doesn't speak very highly of the other 37% who had time and didn't stop. But what it illustrates is a statistically significant difference between the compassion showed by people who were in a hurry and those who were not. Maybe the reason the priest and the Levite didn't stop is because they were in a rush. Maybe the reason you and I don't stop is because we're in a hurry. Maybe the real reason we don't reach out to those people in our own family who are in need of mercy is because we're going about our own business, getting our own tasks done, going to work, coming home, taking care of the chores. Maybe the reason we don't reach beyond our narrow definition of neighbor is because we're just busy. And so Jesus gives then an example of someone who shows mercy, an example found in one of the most unlikely places imaginable. Here's the shock of the story. This is the stuff at the end that anybody in Jesus' audience would have been uh, angry, quite honestly. This is a controversial choice of a hero. This was a Samaritan. And a Samaritan was hated because a Samaritan was a mixed ethnicity. Uh, Samaritans were part Jew, part Arab. They were 
considered traitors because they had forsaken their Jewish heritage by not marrying other Jews and helping to strengthen the Jewish nation. They were considered theologically suspect because they did not believe the same things that Jews believed. Jews believed the true place of worship was in Jerusalem. Samaritans believed the true place of worship was on Mount Gerizim. And this was such a point of controversy between Jews and Samaritans that when Jesus meets the woman at Jacob's well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she asks Jesus to weigh in on this controversy. She asked him, do we worship on this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus says, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. He doesn't give in to that test. He doesn't weigh in on that question And this divided Jews and Samaritans. So it wasn't simply the fact that Samaritans were considered traitors to their own nation, and not just because they were considered racially and ethnically inferior, but it was also because they were considered theologically in error. They believed the wrong things. And this is who Jesus chooses as the hero of the story. So you hear priest, and then you hear Levite, And then the next person you might expect to hear is Pharisee, maybe Sadducee, another prominent religious leader. But no, Jesus chooses someone who was hated. And the shock of this to Jesus' audience is difficult to describe. The closest comparison I could give you is this. Suppose I were to tell the story in modern terms and and say a man is on the side of the road and the first person who passes by is a doctor, right? A respected, upstanding person who, no, he passes by on the opposite side of the road. And then along comes a, I don't know, a school teacher. School teachers help people. And then maybe the third person you're expecting is, oh, a Baptist minister. He's going to be the hero of the story, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He chooses someone that in our context would be like this. Uh, You have a doctor and then a school teacher and then a radical extremist terrorist comes along and renders mercy. And the shock of that and the irritation of that and the controversy of that in our context would be comparable to what Jesus would have engendered in his audience when he spoke these words. This is the shock of the story that We've lost by our distance from the culture. And it is the Samaritan Jesus chooses as the hero who demonstrates mercy that is expensive and costly and risky. Because you see, he endangers his own life in order to help this man. He endangers his own economic status His his bank account is in jeopardy because he helps this man. He essentially pays for the man to be cared for and then leaves his credit card for the innkeeper and says, whatever it costs, when I return, I will pay. That is risky and costly and expensive and inconvenient mercy. And in response, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, three lessons for us as we wrap this up. Number one, we're called to take the dangerous road, which means 
We do not have the option as followers of Christ to be motivated by fear, either in our view of public policy or our view of private policy. We're called to be motivated by compassion, by mercy. We have to take the dangerous road. We have to reach out to those in our family and beyond who are in need, who are suffering, who are in trouble, who are destitute, who are robbed, who are empty and in need. We have to take the dangerous road. Number two, we have to reconnect things that we tend to separate in our own minds. We have to reconnect messaging and neighboring. We have to reconnect belief and action. Being a Christian, as Jesus teaches, is about more than just what we believe. It's about whether we actually do what Jesus said to do. Go and do likewise. This is how the parable ends. We have to reconnect these things. And then, number three, we must slow down. We must create margin for ministry to the people around us. Why do families fall apart? Often it's from negligence, not intention. Most families, you don't start off and say, I think I'm going to torpedo the way my family functions. No, you, it suffers, it withers on the vine for lack of time and attention. Most of our difficult relationships suffer from lack of attention. We give attention to the things that we value and that we cherish. We ignore the things we don't. And in our busyness, we miss out on showing compassion, sometimes to those who are the closest to us, who may be the absolute most difficult people for us to love. Take the dangerous road, reconnect belief and action. Create the margin that is needed for you to care for your neighbor, both narrowly and broadly. Because we were the person robbed and blind and in need of mercy, and God showed his incredible mercy to us and says to us, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Our God, we are humbled by the challenge of your word, by the teaching of Jesus that confronts us in ways that aren't always comfortable or easy, we are reminded that to be your followers, we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. For all of the ways I fail to do that, forgive me. And help us to leave this place this morning committed more deeply to showing compassion to our families, to our family of faith, to our neighbors, and to think about our neighbors in radically broad ways as Christ taught us to, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, as you have loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.